If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. Hello, everyone. Welcome to LA Not So Confidential. I'm Dr. Shiloh. And this is Dr. Scott. And welcome to episode seven. This is like our mid-season finale. Oh, wow. We actually have a real, (laughs) a long enough season to actually break in half, right? Yes, we do. As opposed to our first season. (laughs) So this is the last episode that will be out for 2018. Right. But it's not the last episode of season two. Absolutely So we're only putting one out in December. Um, As I had posted on a blog page on our website, which is la-not-so-confidential.com, um, that we have some exciting things to wrap up at the end of the year. And it's not the end. We have some really exciting things planned for January and all of 2019. Yeah, also. very much. Yeah. So, of course, we have the True Crime Podcast Festival in Chicago in the summer. There's also something being released next year that Dr. Scott is a part of that is going to blow your minds. Um, So, and we hope that just a a lot more opportunities come our way. So, all right. So this episode is going to be huge. This is our big reveal. This is our big reveal. Um, Some of you may have guessed just from some things I posted on social media or reading the blog post. But what we're going to do today is get into the TV show Manhunt Unabomber, which was originally on Discovery Channel earlier this year, now on Netflix. And we really, since it premiered last year, wanted to find a way to cover it because it was so well done. Um, But we didn't feel that the topic was right. Until we dove into the concept of incels last time. You know, for all of our experience, it it really only came to the forefront of my knowledge. We talked about this a little bit ago Mm -hmm. in my current job with a government agency here in Southern California. um, It only emerged for me about five months ago, middle of the summer, was my first um, interact, like having to immerse in this. And then – you and I talking about it, and it was a new concept to you yeah. as well. So yeah. once again, another example of, you know, the, the field of forensics is very wide. Right. So we, <clears throat> we're we going to tie that in together in the second half of this episode. The first half, we want to talk about the show. But the second half is really exciting because we have an interview with James R. Fitzgerald, um, the FBI profiler and forensic linguist that essentially caught the Unabomber and made forensic linguistics a thing. And I am taking no credit for snagging that. You absolutely <laughs> snagged him and congratulate. I'm so excited that you were 
well, that he was he was actually quite enthusiastic about oh, being absolutely. interviewed, which was wonderful. So that is to come, the second half of this episode, um, more than half, actually. But let's get into Manhunt Unabomber. Let's do. Um, so as I said, this was originally on Discovery Channel and is now on Netflix. So if you haven't seen it, it's just a miniseries. I think it's about eight episodes It's eight long. episodes, all and, directed by the same director, which uh, I think is a really – I, I really like that because you can feel that there's a, a, a another layer of follow through that maybe doesn't happen in series that get so many different directors. I think that was amazing. Right, right. So first, how we're going to merge these two topics, that's going to be covered later. But just talking about the show in general, I absolutely loved it. I think it was one of my favorite miniseries ever. Um I feel like a lot of people missed it the first time around, and now people are finally catching on. But I know I was thinking when it first came out, okay, this case is 20 years old. What are they going to bring to it <laughs> that's interesting or new or is going to keep my interest? Um, but it was do- just done very well. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about who's in it and who plays who? Yeah, Um it was an interesting casting choice for someone. A lot of people are familiar with the actor Sam Worthington from his really big blockbuster, which was Avatar, which is what now? Is that 11 years? God, it has it's, to be. It's been a while. And he's been in a couple of other things that, you know, did more or less better. But uh, he plays uh, James Fitzgerald um, and does a great job, you know, really kind of shows – I think the thing that's most amazing about this and why you like – I think one of the reasons you liked it so much and the reason I liked it so much is it shows the development of an aspect of profiling that had not previously existed. And how if that that paradigm had not been discovered and quantified and qualified by Fitzgerald, for one thing, the Unabomber would not have been caught. Nope. And it has also – immensely altered the landscape of profiling. It's added an aspect to it that didn't exist previously, which is invaluable. Mm -hmm. Invaluable. Mm -hmm. Another tool. Yeah. So um, Sam Worthington plays James Fitzgerald. And then we have like another sort of amazing, you know, British actor who the Brits apparently can do anything. (laughs) Um, Paul Bettany, who is, he plays the superhero robot Vision in the Marvel uh, movie series. He uh, first came to attention. I think his first big role was in um, what was the Tom Hanks vehicle uh, that was the conspiracy theory about the Catholic Church. Oh, Da Vinci Code? The Da Vinci Code, Mm -hmm. right. He plays the albino killer monk. Oh, that's right. Right. He was so freaking scary in that. Like, who would have ever thought you could make a monk scary? Okay, well, this guy was a scary assassin monk. So he's Ted Kaczynski, and he is excellent in this. Yeah. Um, Everyone else is kind of background because they totally steal it. Uh, Although we were talking about, for those of you mm -hmm. who haven't seen it, I really urge you to see it um, uh, for a number of reasons. However, there's uh, one of the things that pops out to me. We were just talking about some of the other actors in it. There's another actor, Mark Duplass, who's been around for a long time. Uh, actually, I think started out as a stand-up comedian and has done – he actually was in a really frightening low-budget horror movie called Creep. Did oh, you ever really? see it? Oh, really? No, I didn't. So he's not playing an awful character here. He plays Kaczynski's brother. Right. And Damn. just – I think that – 
as someone who has been involved in a family legal matter myself, what resonated with me was how um, the director and Mark Duplass and the um, the woman who Elizabeth Reeser, who's also a wonderful actor, who plays his wife. These are two people who were related to Ted Kaczynski and have this character development arc where you realize where they are coming to realize that someone that they care about has done really horrible things. And the way that's presented is pretty amazing. How they struggle with it, the denial and... Well, so the show, I mean, it has everything, like all the intensity and suspense that you want from a true crime drama. Right. Um, and I know you said you thought it moved a little slow for well, you. it moved but... a little slow for me, but then I came back, went back and I was thinking about it, Shiloh, and I thought it's not that it moves slow. It's that it doesn't have melodrama, and that's actually a really good thing because mm-hmm. you don't need melodrama because when the intensity that you're talking about, when those people are unwrapping packages oh, in their homes, it's terrifying. And you know, you know. Yeah, it, it's not slow. It's very deliberate. I feel like that's perfect. That's and a perfect way to put it, it. Sam Worthington plays Fitz so wonderfully. Um, you know, I feel like he's very relatable. Like you were talking about, here's this guy that's a brand new profiler, gets asked to be on this task force. He's this Philadelphia cop, you know, coming in, just graduated from profiling school, um, and he's far from perfect. So he's he's relatable. Um, but I feel like he's he's relatable in the way of those of us starting out in careers where we desperately want to find our niche. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we want to be good at it and be recognized by people who are already good in that tradecraft. And he just meets a lot of obstacles. A lot. <laughs> in the reality of like. But that's it. It's like it's, it's, it's not just true crime. I think that they really they, – they create um, – a new way of doing, of telling a story, a true crime story, without making it melodramatic, because there's enough there already mm-hmm. in the way these these people develop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I when he's faced with, okay, I just graduated, and they're calling me to do this thing I want to do, but I've been away from my family for so long. What do Oof. I pick? Yeah. And I know that's a struggle that I had when I was contemplating going to the FBI. Of, yeah. This may come down to the FBI or my husband, and we had those conversations. And, and me sabotaging your efforts so that I would be able to not right. have you leave. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I just I, – it, it resonated with me. Um, but, you know, I'm already thinking that the, the series is great for all those reasons. And then – Episode 7 comes along, which is the episode that the Unabomber is – they show him in childhood and then just like from his perspective for the first time. Right smack dab, you know, towards the end of the series, all of a sudden they're going to turn it on its head and now you're seeing um, it it from his perspective and how he developed and his time at Harvard. um, Because I've been – Wonderful things. Right, because up until that time, the what you've been exposed to is this individual who is cold. Mm-hmm. 
he well, almost is just a shadow of a person in a way because they don't really know who he is yet. Right. I mean, from from our perspective, I mean, if we were going to diagnose, you know, you're viewing that as a clinician, you're going, wow, that, that that's a little bit of a schizotypal, schizoid mm-hmm. personality issue. Or or is it someone that's on the spectrum? Right. You know, what is going on here? But this guy really is pretty callous in the way he has these sure. interactions with his family. He's, you know, derogatory towards certain members of his family. Yeah. But yeah. then, like you said, it all gets turned over because you see his challenges. You see rejection after rejection starting from his best friend in, like, preteen years rejecting him. And then it just keeps going um, into I say relationships in air quotes, you know, these relationships he's trying to develop with people um, and the anger, the anger is building. And you start to go, OK, monster was one category I had him in. Now you're like, oh, I see how someone could turn into that. Right. You see that path, right? That evolution, which like we have said before, mm-hmm. quoting Kevin Cameron mm-hmm. and the model that he uses in Canada that – no one ever snaps, that right. the pathway to violence is an evolutionary process. Right, right. And we're going to, in our interview with James R. Fitzgerald, we're going to talk specifically about that when we link this to some of the behavior that we see in incels and specifically with Ted Kaczynski's relations um, with women. Um, but you also see how he was a part of these psychological studies at Harvard and essentially, one of the psychologists was doing some tests for MK Ultra, <laughs> and it's pretty terrifying. Yeah, you know, obviously there's some creative liberty, and it's depicted in a certain way. We will we will never know if right. it was anywhere near that. But talk about damaging someone. I mean, he was only 16 when he went to Harvard, which was another aspect that they talk about. I mean, he was yeah. really too young to be handling that environment. Sure. And if you don't know what MKUltra is, people, oh, I mean, please, that's required learning <laughs> psychology. Go, there's a great Wikipedia article on it. Please, that'd be, that'll be yes. your, your doorway to their rabbit hole that you may <laughs> never get out of. We do all of our um, <clears throat> forensic psychology research from Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> that's a diving board. Just kidding. Just kidding check your resources folks um so i just thought episode seven was one of the most beautiful episodes of television um just it really highlighting again just the betrayals the rejection that he faced um and some integral developmental times that take people to really dark places exactly with no one to guide him out of it right right and pairing that with Extremely high intelligence um, just obviously makes for a very captivating story. Right. So, uh, but they go on to catch him, of course, with heightened anticipation. Um, but I think the last episode is always also equally as, as touching and clever as the rest of the series. Uh, you know, they, again, we, we learned that not everything that happened in the course of the investigation in the case is true to what actually happened in real life. But... They really hit home sort of the irony of him being sentenced to this 8 by 10 cell, which is essentially the same dimensions that his cabin was. But one was by choice and being isolated and in nature and being able to go out and dance in the rain when you want to. And then as they're carting him off 
to prison. He gets one last glimpse of the Rocky Mountains in Colorado, and then it's gone. It's just concrete after that. And, I mean, I felt I felt for him watching this. Yeah, go back and watch episode one when he's I know, I know, I know. But I, I, I know, I hear you. And you hear, you hear these, um, I mean, you see all of the injured and maimed people testifying and talking about they don't want him to ever, you know, see something again because some of his victims can't see or touch something again because his victims can't touch. Um, and it's, it, it's just sad all the way around. Yeah. Um, especially when you, you see the progression of someone being made into that because of circumstance, but then you've got to come back to, okay, I mean, he has the choice on what to do with that anger. Right. And um, obviously what he chose to do was horrific. And then we, we can further splice that, ar- that argument of choice is not a clear-cut, black-and-white, concrete paradigm. Choice is based on contextual factors that may vary from person to person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's it's complex. It's very complex. It and is. you want to, you know, like you're saying, by the end of this really well-told story, you have this experience of seeing, you know, having, I don't know if I say compassion, but you certainly had an emotional reaction. Sure. And you see that there was an aspect of him that is human, you know, Absolutely. but somehow that got really twisted. Right. And and he did have choices along the way. He allowed it to become more, you know, what makes him any different from his brother? Mm-hmm. And maybe there are genetic factors. Maybe mm-hmm. there are other things. Or maybe mm-hmm. it was the parents' bad decision to let him go to college early. Right. Right. Yeah. There's just so much there. And I, I think it was very um, reflective and sort of parallel of the work that we do. Because as I've likened it before, you know, law enforcement, law enforcement was easy in a sense. It's black or white. They either broke the law or they didn't. So you take them to jail or you don't. And that's all you have to look at. And in this chair that we're in, we're looking at all the in-between and the gray of what led to what. Exactly. And so in law enforcement, you don't have to necessarily deal with that um, human factor or the the why. Uh, That's all we do really now is the why and maybe the what can we do to prevent something in the future? Right. But it, it, it was very reflective, I thought, in that sense. Um, so any other thoughts about the show? Because I want to, to talk a little bit about our guests that we're going to be speaking with. Yes, I do. Before we get into the interview, I want to give a little bit of background information on this absolutely amazing individual. Um, James R. Fitzgerald is an American criminal profiler, forensic linguist, and author. He is a retired FBI agent with 20 years of service that he completed in the rank of supervisory special agent. And while he's best known for his role in the Unabom investigation that resulted in the arrest and conviction of Ted Kaczynski, he's also known for literally creating a new paradigm through which to profile criminals, the field of forensic linguistics. Now, as an expert in the area of forensic linguistics, he engaged in the scientific-oriented analysis of written and spoken language for investigative and evidentiary purposes. So James R. Fitzgerald graduated from the police academy in November of 1976. He became a patrolman on the Ben Salem Police Department, which was a mid-sized suburb just north of Philadelphia. And he was on the force for 11 years, working as a patrolman, a detective, a detective, 
a patrol sergeant, a detective sergeant, making all sorts of arrests and dealing with all sorts of political intrigue within the department itself. And he describes that he sort of took stock of his life and was clearly time to move on. So he applied and joined the FBI. Uh, He graduated in 1988. He was a brand new agent assigned to New York City. And while there, he investigated bank robberies, kidnappings, extortions, many other violent incidents, which happened to be federal crimes. And then he learned of an opportunity for advancement within the FBI, one that he knew he could master and one at which he would succeed, and that was as a criminal profiler. So he went back to Quantico to go through that school. Um, more, it was It's actually a promotion and in a lot of intensive training and his new assignment. Isn't that interesting that he he knew that that would be an avenue for him? I think that's interesting in itself. So So, um, Jim remains an active criminal profiler and forensic linguist, even after retiring with 20 years in the FBI and as well as 11 years before that as a police officer, detective sergeant. During his law enforcement career, he successfully investigated numerous homicides and other violent crimes as well as other matters of international notoriety to include the Unabomb, anthrax scares, and the D.C. sniper cases in the roles of profiler or linguist. Jim serves as an adjunct professor at two U.S. universities. He lectures at many others, and he's known both nationally and internationally as an educator and He's also one of the two technical advisors for CBS TV's Criminal Minds, and he's co-host and executive producer of A&E's Killer Profile. He's the author of a series of autobiographies entitled A Journey to the Center of the Mind. There are three volumes of that, and they cover the span of his life and career experiences over five decades. What is revealed is the remarkable life of a man who becomes extraordinary as a result of his extraordinary understanding of criminality. In A Journey to the Center of the Mind, Jim Fitzgerald recounts his experiences during the 60s and 70s in this sometimes funny, sometimes tragic, but always moving portrait of an FBI profiler as a young man. From his first ever successful investigation at six years old, face-offs with childhood bullies, and encounters with nakedish neighborhood interlopers to high school and college antics, lifeguard summers, friends, including a future convicted killer friend— From early admiration for and later run-ins with law enforcement to his stint as a store detective and ultimately his graduation from the police academy, Fitzgerald shares the good, the bad, and the not-so-pretty of his early life's journey. So, folks, we're so excited. Yeah, (laughs) What a career and life. uh, It's mind-blowing. And we're so excited to be able to offer not only for us to have this experience of um, interviewing him, but to welcome you to an interview with James R. Fitzgerald the profiler who caught the Unabomber. Sit back and have a listen to our interview. To take this conversation into an interesting twist, Dr. Scott and I are joined by FBI royalty. Really? <laughs> uh, retired FBI profile profiler and forensic linguist, James R. Fitzgerald. Welcome to our show, Jim. Hi, Shiloh, and hi, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Sure. I really want to call you Fitz, but I think I'll keep it a little bit more professional (laughs) (laughs) and just refer to you as Jim. Um, Well, Fitz is fine if you slip up, so that's fine. No problem. Thank you. That's fun. Uh, So 
for our listeners, Jim and I met back in August at a training here in LA, and he was talking about the art and science of forensic linguistics and how it played such an integral role, of course, in identifying and building a case against Ted Kaczynski, also known as the Unabomber. And I just remember sitting there and listening to you talk, and you're describing some things about Kaczynski and the word incel popped into my head. And probably even while you were still talking, I shot a text to Scott and said, Unabomber equal incel question <laughs> mark? And he said, oh yeah, oh yeah. So that was kind of where this was born as far as, hey, maybe this is a topic that possibly fits to this guy. Um, and of course, you were so lovely in person that I just knew that I could reach out to you about this sort of crazy concept. Um, but Scott, do you want to, I'm just... glad, and I'm glad you did Shiloh. And I, uh, yeah. And I thought about this. I wasn't only familiar with the term incel in the last year or so, but going back 20 years, Kaczynski certainly fits that category. And we can get certainly into that as we go along here. Great. That was one of the conversations that we had, uh, just recently. We talked about it in the, the episode leading up to this is that this term has obviously been around, uh, in various, uh, communities or elements online, but it hasn't been part of the common vernacular, even though I know, uh, wasn't criminal minds or SVU. One of the, one of the television shows has, has done an episode about an incel, but we were both kind of amazed about how recently this has been suddenly popping up. And I work for a government agency in Los Angeles dealing with, uh, issues of mental illness in the community and I partner with law enforcement and we are now uh, having to address this issue um, as it's come up in some of our referred clients so it's it's just sort of exploded into the mainstream in a way uh, I guess people really weren't expecting until the Isla Vista event right so just to recap for those who haven't um, had a chance to listen to the previous episode the term incel, I-N-C-E-L, it is a portmanteau or a combination of two words, involuntary celibacy or involuntary, involuntary celibates. So these are members of a subculture, which is predominantly online. These are individuals who define themselves as unable to find a romantic or a sexual partner despite having desires to have one. And this, this uh, condition or uh, state of being is called inceldom. And the individuals who self-identify are uh, mostly white, uh, male, and heterosexual, although there are various subcultures within that group. Um, and as of now, the Southern Poverty Law Center has described the subculture as part of an online male supremacist ecosystem. And it's included in their list of hate groups. And at least four mass murders resulting in 45 deaths have been committed in North America by individuals who either self-identify as incels or who have mentioned incel-related names and writings. So that's the overview, which is mm -hmm. an umbrella at best because there are so many subcultures and, and arguments within the incel community. Right. So, Jim, you know, obviously you being the expert on Ted Kaczynski's writings, not only the ones that people are familiar with, like the manifesto, but his private writings over the years. Um, this is where we really wanted to hear from you and see what were some things that stood out to you about Kaczynski's development, either socially or sexually, 
let's just start with, you know, childhood or adolescence that he wrote about or referred to that kind of pings with the worldview of incels. Well, Shiloh, as you know, I've written uh, three books. Uh, their title is A Journey to the Center of the Mind. It's my memoir series. There's a fourth one coming out in about a year. And the last uh, long chapter of book three uh, uh, has to do with my role in the Unabomb case. And from the very beginning, as a brand new profiler being sent out to San Francisco, the Unabomb Task Force. So, uh, And, of course, working the case with only the Unabomber, and no person identified as this serial killer, this serial bomber. But also, um, you know, later, after 17 years, you know, in my, uh, in my uh, about seven months uh, on the task force, all of a sudden we identify a guy named Ted Kaczynski, and this all started, sort of comes together for me. But, uh, but having compared the Unabomber, again, no Kaczynski yet, to earlier um, serial bombers and serial killers, Part of the profile assembled by John Douglas and those who predated me on the case, and then later uh, enhanced by me once on the Unabomb Task Force, we definitely knew there was a some level of a psychosexual component to this. Many bombers have issues in that regard. It may be um, very omnipresent and very obvious to people around them. It may be more on a secretive side or a very personal side that really only the bomber himself uh, is aware. Uh, and in this case, with the Unabomber, and we didn't know this yet, but uh, Ted Kaczynski would have fallen into that latter category. In other words, a lot of frustration about his uh, inability to not only have a sexual relationship, but uh, as I read everything he wrote, not just the manifesto and the other letters associated with the Unabomber and FC, but certainly once the arrest was made, we through the search warrant, we've confiscated every single item in his uh, 10 foot by 12 foot cabin. And I had uh, the luxury, if you will, of reading through those uh, 1,000 separate documents wow. and communications. And that's when we learned a whole lot about this guy's uh, frustration and his, his, his self-loathing. Much of it related to how his parents raised him and sort of turn him, using his own words, into a social retard. But on top of that, as he grew to adulthood, he would write, uh, his, his anger and his frustration over not having that successful relationship with any woman, much less a sexual relationship with any woman. At 54 years of age, when he was placed under arrest, this admittedly heterosexual man uh, was still a virgin. He had never had sex with a woman. So we knew... <laughs> Sexual uh, issues were at play with this guy. Exactly how much, we didn't know right away, but we were soon to learn. Wow. So it, was he commenting at all just about, um, you know, maybe some early struggles in high school or college with even things like sexual identity? Well, I mean, just so we're clear, when you say commenting, uh, nobody interviewed the Unabomber. That's the one little problem I had with the miniseries is they had the Sam Worthington character portraying Fitz and the Paul Bettany character portraying Ted Kaczynski meeting face to face a few times. That didn't happen. So everything I know about Ted Kaczynski and, and by the way, he didn't speak to any FBI agent. Uh, there were no interviews. So everything we know about Kaczynski comes from his own writings 
And again, not just the public ones, as you said, Shiloh, with the manifesto, but what we found inside his cabin. So, uh, yeah, and these issues, he wrote an autobiography. He titled it Autobiography, and it starts with his date of birth and and being raised in the, in the Chicago area and then how his parents moved later and grade school and high school, skipping grades and off to Harvard at 16, whatever. And everywhere he went, it seems, he felt like an outsider. He felt like he didn't belong. And, you know, looking at early pictures, and I know we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here, uh, Ted Kaczynski was a decent-looking guy. He was about 5'10". He was thin, you know, nothing, uh, you know, unusual or, or awkward about his gait or his, his overall look. Right. Yet he would have been average not, or a normie, as, as the incels refer to it. He, he would have certainly fit into that category, but uh, on a physical level. But inside, he was just teeming with insecurities and anxieties that, again, later he blamed his parents. But then a lot of it came about because he just couldn't find or maintain a relationship uh, with a woman, with a woman of any sort. And we can talk a little bit about how that played out. But I suppose the earliest example of a manifestation of this uh, angst on his part was during his uh, doctoral studies at the University of Michigan. And this would have been in the mid-1960s, maybe 64, 65. And again, I read a few chapters of Kaczynski's own writings about this, where he was so uh, disturbed and so unsure of himself and his sexual identity that he decided the solution to this problem was to go from a from being a biological male to a biological female, I guess. I know these terms are used in different ways now, but he basically wanted a sex change operation in the mid-60s while a student at the University of Michigan working on his doctoral uh, uh, you know, degree. And um, he walked into the doctor's office, and this is written so clearly. He's a, the guy's a good writer and really helped us get inside the brain uh, and the mind and the heart of, of this future serial killer. And he basically lays it out over a few pages. He went in. He saw this psychologist. He didn't respect psychology or psychiatry at all. Sorry, guys, to tell you that. <laughs> oh, darn. It's not the first yeah. time we've been told that. <laughs> yeah, and by uh, uh, lesser people than Ted Kaczynski, sure. I'm sure. But that's that's all right. But anyway, and he said, well, fine, I'll go to this uh, psychologist. I, I, I think a psychologist as opposed to a medical doctor. But either way, and he laid out a situation. I want to become a woman. And, uh, well, OK, have you thought long about this? And the interaction was actually captured relatively well in, these, in these, the, this chapter that Ted wrote about himself. And eventually the doctor said, well, um, when do you want to start this program? And he said, well, I'd like the surgery in the next week or two. Wow. And the doctor wow. sat back in his chair as I'm reading this. As I sat back in my chair while reading this, and the doctor said, "Well, no, I'm sorry. Um, you're going to need at least, you know, three to five years of therapy. We, at some point, we'll put you on some meds, which will facilitate some hormonal changeovers, whatever." And I'm just kind of remembering these things he wrote. And then maybe at the five-year point, if we think we're ready to go, uh, we could possibly have. I'm not sure they even called it reconstruction surgery or transitory yeah. surgery. Yeah, but my, I don't think that they called it that back yeah, then. In the right. 60s, uh, wow. And and the point is, Ted, like, according to his own you know words, he got very upset at this guy and said, "Yeah, well, I'll call you. Don't call me." In so many words, and he walked out the door, and it was at that very point. Again, I'm 
I'm not reciting his words, but I'm, I'm certainly paraphrasing them. He walked out the door and said, hell with change into a woman. I don't need that. I can stay exactly who I am. What I'm going to do instead is kill people like this doctor. Who does he think he is telling me I can't become what I want to be? And I'm going to kill people like him, too. I'm not sure exactly how, but I'm going to find a way to do it. And it was literally about 12, a degree, a couple years teaching at Berkeley, uh, a few more years living in the woods of Montana. But it was about 12 years after that, uh, that um, you know, uh, thought came to him that, uh, that all of a sudden he started killing people or trying to in 1978 when he started his serial bombing campaign. But uh, And there's other anecdotes between these and when the bombing started relating to his sexual issues. But lo and behold, it's, um, it was there present in his, certainly in his early 20s. Remember, he got out of Harvard at 20. He's working on his Ph.D. at barely 21. And here he is already wanting a, a sex change. He was told it would take five years. The hell with it. I'm going to kill people instead. Took him about 12 years later. And then the, the killing started. My goodness. So he did end up following through essentially with that fantasy of killing people. Yeah. Even though it took it a while, with, he stuck to it. And it started with sexual sexuality questions about himself, which I'm sure many people go through at different stages in their life, mostly at some point in their youth. But this guy, when he was told, hey, there's a process involved and you must believe in the process and work with us. We're not saying no, Ted graduate student Kaczynski, but we're saying it's going to take about five years. Well, this guy couldn't wait. And then he walks out the door and says, ah, that's not what I need anyway. I need to kill people instead. And again, it put it on hold. He let it fester for about 12 more years with no cure in sight, if you will. I put cure in air quotes here in that in terms of him identifying a better self, a more positive persona, because he had no luck uh, he had no success, if you will, with uh, with meeting women or developing relationships with them. And again, we have other examples of that uh, coming up. Well, and it it makes you wonder, is this a gender identity issue or is this him being so discouraged and thinking, nope, it'll just be better if I'm a woman, then I can meet someone and have a relationship. It, just sort of the impulsiveness and how quickly he wanted to just flip this to be on the opposite side leaves us to sort of wonder where that really stemmed from as well. Sure. He's, he's born and raised in the 1940s and 50s and 60s and male and female traditional roles, what have you. And, you know, um, I, I guess, you know, he felt, you know, the men had to work for sex and they had to really uh, ply their trade and wine and dine and all these things. And quite frankly, have the personality to develop a relationship with a woman and, um, and, and, and take advantage of an, of an adult consensual sexual relationship, but it seems he didn't have the time, the patience, or perhaps the personality for that, and um, and he decided to go about it in other ways, releasing these frustrations uh, on a delayed basis, but certainly uh, releasing them big time once he got going in full force there with his bombing campaign. Yeah, it, it occurs to me that from what you've described, we're looking at someone who, um, despite his clear high intelligence uh, that he is can be in certain domains he can be a very concrete thinker as well as someone who has a very low tolerance for distress so he wants a black and white answer right now he wants what he wants when he wants it and if he can't have it then he reacts in anger and retribution well Scott when you're a brilliant mathematician you can get those answers on paper right away <sighs> 
Great point. Uh, it may take you Great minutes. Point. It may take you hours. There's my answer. And I'm not going to bother to try to recite some, uh, you know, math formula. But, you know, A equals B minus C times squared, you know, two, three, four, plus infinity. There's the answer after the equal sign. That's what Ted's life was all about. And he was great at it. He wanted to apply that to his personal life. But as he was finding out, it doesn't quite work that way. Math is black and white and life is all within the gray. Hmm. Uh, That's excellent point, Shiloh. And of course, that's true. So in your book, um, part three, Journey to the Center of the Mind, you note that in the manifesto, he mentioned the word sex about 17 times. Do you recall what the context was when he talked about that specifically in the manifesto? Um, I'd have to go back and look at, you know, page by page, but I, it was important to me to count the topical references he had. And I did this, I mean, word, uh, and there were some very basic software uh, out at the time in the, in the mid-90s to do some of these counts. But I just wanted to know this guy so well. I read every word myself of his manifesto over and over and over. And at one point I was counting topics uh, uh, and, and of course how important uh, they were to him and then society and, uh, and leftism and things like that were near the very top psychology. Uh, but sex comparatively speaking was a little bit further down the line there, but there are so many other issues of power and control and societal uh, issues that a lot of them really could almost be arguably you know, uh, carried over into the, into the sexual category. But in terms of sex itself, uh, it was mostly about how men and women uh, uh, operate within the Western culture in which, you know, most of us reading the manifesto were raised, uh, or at least his targeted audience, I suppose. And, uh, and it, it did render uh, issues of frustration and how, you know, men weren't sure how to act here, how to act there. And, and, and sometimes the same with women and society imposes various uh, restrictions and limitations on us. And, of course, uh, the psychologists and psychiatrists don't know what they're talking about. So it was sort of a mixed bag from what I remember. And anybody reading it, uh, you could probably, probably get a better thought of it there. But it, it wasn't I do know it wasn't laid out in a positive form. In other words, the industrial society, the technical technological revolution hasn't helped men and women cope better with each other. Again, if we were living in those agrarian tribes, probably with the male as the leader of that tribe, with his various women around him, uh, I'm not sure if he was for monogamous or polygamous, uh, polygamous type of relationships, mm-hmm. but I'm sure he would have gone either way if the women were, uh, were, were there for him. But, um, but you know, in that sort of a, of, a, of a society or a mini culture, you know, living off the land, uh, hunting, uh, gathering, uh, it would have been much better for the sexes to relate. He wasn't graphic at all and, or really talking about the sex act per se in the manifesto, not that I recall anyway, and nothing specific, but, uh, but it was more about the uh, interrelationships between men and women and how basically the Industrial Revolution has made it tougher for men and women to be seen as who they really are and to foster these, uh, you know, positive relationships. You know, this is just one other uh, factor that I think of as, a, as I was reading your book and as we're preparing for this and just how the world today and where what role technology plays in how people are interacting just how it would blow his mind, no pun intended, <laughs> how it would blow his mind to see how 
things are where people go about with these dating apps and having full on relationships with never meeting in real life. Or the meeting takes place within an hour at a convenient location, like on Tinder or something, and then it's over. Yeah. (laughs) And and names may not even be shared conceivably. And there's nothing forced, nothing criminal. It's, you know, ostensibly adult males and females or females and females, whatever. But, yeah, this would, uh, in fact, blow his mind and probably a few other things, to use your your term. (laughs) And uh, and I've done enough. uh, I've done a number of interviews uh, in the last year or so. And the question becomes, uh, hey, was Kaczynski right? Was the Unabomber right in what he Uh wrote in his manifesto about technology and this modern world uh, doing not to expand our horizons and our our relationships with the earth and each other, but actually to restrict them and limit them and and cut them down to size and make us more dependent on, uh, on computers and software uh, then, of course, any time in the in the past. And and what's this going to do with our society? And and I, I can't help but acknowledge. And I, I remember saying it back then to my colleagues, you know, I never advocated for this guy sending out bombs or killing people. But, boy, he's got a few interesting points here. And this is well before smartphones. I think some of us had the brick size cell phones back. Right. Then, mobile phones. But uh, but none of us were sitting there texting away with our buddy who's sitting right next to us. But we're both texting other people while in the coffee shop. And uh, whether he saw that in the future or not, who knows? But in many ways, uh, in this manifesto, at least uh, the Unabomber slash Kaczynski was prescient to some degree uh, in terms of this and how I usually respond in closing to these questions. Well, it's the old broken clock is uh, is right, you know, twice a day. <laughs> exactly. Of course, they're the wall clocks. Now the n- digital ones blink at 12. So uh, <laughs> right. the uh, 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 evaluation doesn't quite work the same way. But but you know what I mean. So yeah. he did make some valid points there. But um, but we were far too beyond, you know, um, uh, our society was far too beyond the Industrial Revolution to ever come into the this agrarian society that he was hoping to revisit going back, you know, 100,000 years in our ancestors' history. So unrealistic. But uh, and again, he knew it was unrealistic, no doubt. And that's why he had to kill people. So and, and kind of following up on that, can you talk a little bit about he had placed a couple of personal ads when he was living out in the cabin in Montana? And the wording was very interesting. Yes, he did. And um, the um, the first one was relatively um, benign. It went to the San Francisco Chronicle. I believe this was 1975. Um, and he um, and he basically wrote um, that he's looking for a woman to live a wilderness life. Uh, and uh, in so many words, only about 15 words. And because uh, you paid by the word back then on the right. back pages of a newspaper. And uh, there's a P.O. box to write to, whatever. And um, and um, quite frankly, he got a few responses. And he wrote in his own journal to himself, um, or what is it, his notes. He actually broke these things down into separate sort of uh, missives in his own uh, in his cabin. And he, he's actually met with a few of these women somehow. But I think he was living in Chicago at the time. Okay. Um, I'd have to research uh, research exactly that. But uh, none of them met his condition. They weren't smart enough. Uh, They were one wore too much makeup. Another one did not have what he thought to be childbearing hips. 
Mm, so, that's problematic so, sometimes. So yeah. he cast her aside. And then about three years later, he thought he'd go a little more, um, you know, organic. So he actually chose Mother Earth News. And I'm just reading an article here about uh, uh, about what they wrote about in Cell, one of the, one of the journalists uh, for that uh, media outlet. And, uh, and he said uh, uh, something like, uh, woodsmen looking for squaw. Wow. You know, to live in the wilderness and blah, blah, blah. Once again, about 15 words mm-hmm. and the same format. He wasn't using any. There were no everyday computers or PCs that people had. So he was OK to use a printing press and uh, and a regular newspaper for these ads. And apparently he got some responses to that. Those ads, too, but all in the negative And um, and they never went anywhere. So what that seems was like his, nobody was ever yeah. going to be able to meet his standards. Right. Um, it seems that way very much so. And, um, uh, of course, if they were truly interested in living in a 10 foot by 12 foot cabin with no running water or electricity, you're really narrowing your suspect pool, if you will, or I should say your marriage pool, your SIGOTS pool, significant other pool. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and, and some of these people who responded may have been a little, uh, off the beaten path too, like this guy, but he needed someone "Quote unquote normal in his life, and uh, and these women either through letters they wrote. I think there may have been one or two meetings, maybe pictures sent in the mail. Uh, just didn't meet his criteria, and uh, and he gave up after two of those uh, classified ad postings or personal ads, I suppose they used to be called. He gave up uh, after that. But he did have one more interaction in nineteen in the late 70s, 78 or seventy nine, and you may be aware of that one was the miniseries covered it pretty well. Uh, is this the issue with Ellen? Yes, it about? is. Yeah. So, yes. uh, you know, this was probably the closest thing that he um, attained to actually, you know, starting a relationship with a woman, even though it was super, super brief. And I think it was actually you had to sort of catch it in the mini- miniseries to know what was going on. But. I'd, I'd like you to explain what happened, but I want our listeners to sort of keep in mind that it really feels like the archaic version of what incels do now online. So would you mind talking about um, Ted and Ellen? Not at all. And by way of reference, uh, again, Kaczynski graduated uh, University of Michigan, got his um, Ph.D. in math. He was hired right away by University of California at Berkeley did two years there. He didn't get along very well with the students, but uh, his fellow professors knew he was brilliant. Nonetheless, two years, he was out of there. He saved some money. First one to buy property in Canada. For some reason, they never gave him a visa, probably the best decision the Canadian government ever made in that regard, like in 1970 or so. Then he found property in Montana. He and David built the cabin together. David is his seven-year-old younger brother, who ultimately would turn him in based on the writings that he reviewed. Um, So, again, by way of background, uh, Ted would live in this new cabin uh, from like 71 through 78, and he basically left the woods because he wanted to meet a woman. And uh, he comes back home to his family in Chicago after six years living on his own and uh, moves back in with his uh, parents and his younger brother. And Ted has a job at some kind of a foam-cutting plant. He's the manager of it, doesn't own it, but he's the manager. And he hires his older brother with a PhD in mathematics, a brilliant man, to basically cut 
foam and do certain lengths and widths. A uh, very menial job, uh, but you know he took it. But I bet those. The, I bet that foam was perfectly cut. <laughs> you're every to a centimeter. Right, you would have been right there, uh, without a question. And because uh, Ted would certainly bring out his uh, slide rule and his is uh, and everything he needed to get that just right. So. Um, there was a woman who worked across from him or somewhere in this little warehouse named uh, Ellen Tarmichael, and he somehow finally built the courage up. And, yeah, just to go back to the miniseries, uh, the original version of a script that I helped write, we actually made this into like about half half of an episode, but they really cut it short in the uh, in the eight-parter uh, that Discovery Channel ultimately put together, which is now, of course, on Netflix. Uh, but, yeah, so uh, he finally builds up the courage, a little bit of conversation with Ellen, a little bit more after a few weeks, whatever. And he finally sets up a, uh, by, by very loose definition, a date one night. They meet, and I believe they go back to her house, and he somehow helps her bake an apple pie. Uh, it was very platonic that evening. By all uh, indicators, nothing happened uh, in any way of an intimacy type thing, not even a good night kiss. Uh, the next day, Ted comes into work, and the first thing at her desk that morning, uh, can we go out again tonight? You know, without even giving her a chance to breathe. Right. And she was kind of caught off guard because we had agents interview her uh, after the fact. And I read the FD302, the uh, the interview report, and she said, I just told him, Ted, last night was nice. We worked together. Let's just leave it at that. And Ted became so upset, he festered the entire rest of the day. But the very next morning— he gets into work early, and I, I guess these were early. Yeah, these were early. Uh, an early uh, aspect of a um, of a Facebook wall or, or you know a, a, an internet wall of some sort. He gets these post-its, these little three by five post-its, and writes these limericks on them. And I don't have the limerick in front of me, but they're very insulting to poor Ellen. And it's about uh, it's body shaming her about, and it, and it, it actually rhymes almost nicely, if you will. But of course, the words and the topic were awful. What he did to this woman, and he put a hundred of these post-its around their little warehouse. You couldn't walk anywhere in that warehouse without seeing something about Ellen's um, large lower posterior and how it rhymed with a horse's rear posterior, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, David comes in, he sees these things. David, remember, his younger brother, who was Ted's boss, and Ted, what is this? What do you mean? I don't care. I put him up there. She turned me down. David had to fire his older brother from the job. Right. Wow. And, Such uh, telling and he behavior. Was it, it really is. And then uh, no surprise, within a few months of that is when the first bomb was uh, left in the parking lot at the University of Chicago and uh, the killing spree uh, truly started. Right. Wow. A lot of links there. And and the limerick or the poem, whatever you want to call it, is is laid out in your book. So if folks want to look up specifically what he has to say, you're right. I mean, it, he definitely put a lot of thought into that and to come up with that overnight and then write it on hundreds of post-its is just... It's very dehumanizing. It very, very... Yeah, and, and you're right. And he predated, um, you know, uh, the the social network sites and pages where somebody may go on Twitter to nowadays somebody may go on Facebook. So he's really incorporating the same mind, mindset, yes. the same concept, the same aggressive, assertive concept here. But he's doing it 
in the only fashion that was available to him at the time. I, I guess he could have gone broader and, and rented some billboards or right. a skywriter or something like that, uh, you know, or, or a banner plane to go by. But in his way, in his world, that was his uh, that was his wall of shame that he uh, he wanted to get his information out there. And it cost him his job, which real, quite frankly didn't bother him at all about that. And uh, within months, he was building bombs and delivering them. And within a few months after that, he was moving back to the woods once and for all. In the TV show, they sort of they do a very good job of showing this relationship between him and a librarian and her son. Is that real or is that creative liberty? No, that that was real. Like I said, they, I, I tell people the miniseries is eighty-five to ninety percent accurate. Um, they just felt they had two A-lister actors in Sam and Paul, and they had to put them together in some scenes. <laughs> I, I argued against it, but uh, but I won out some other battles uh, that they were trying to recreate some things. So, like I said, most of it is accurate in that regard. And even those interview scenes, just a quick aside here, they're based on questions I would have asked Ted uh, 10 years later when I was supposed to visit him in prison uh, at, the, at the Supermax in, in Colorado. And they're also based on his right, his responses in the series were based on a lot of things that he wrote that I shared with the uh, with the uh, with the writers of the series itself. So that's how that whole thing came together. But um, and um, I went off on a transit. That's uh, OK. The, the librarian I, that he had the, the relationship librarian. with. Yes, that was a real person in Lincoln. And she had a young son. And Ted did befriend both of them. He did seem to have between her and there was a woman that worked in a general store or some kind of a retail retail establishment in Lincoln that he he seemed to have sort of a hybrid uh, love hate relationship with. Not that she did anything wrong, but he would visit, go into town, you know, once or twice a week, ride his bike from his cabin, probably about a five mile ride, and uh, and he would try to be friendly, but she wouldn't give him the time of day. I don't think he approved of the librarian as a sexual partner or even a, uh, a, you know, a a relationship of any sort because she was divorced and she had a young son. But he really did genuinely like the son. He would tutor him in math, at least to some degree. And um, but it seems there's any any relationship at all while living in uh, in his cabin in Lincoln or an attempted relationship. It was a young woman who worked. Uh, behind the counter at some kind of a general store, but uh, nothing really ever came to that, and uh, and he never he never pursued that in any direct way. His you know his relationships had to be either by uh, personal uh, ads in certain newspapers or ultimately with post-it notes all over a building. Uh, once uh, he got turned off by uh, either the look of someone, apparently, or perhaps some type of response they would give him to a second date or whatever, <clears throat> that's when he went into full-blown, uh, you're, you're out of my life mode, and uh, and, and did it that way. So um, he definitely wasn't living in Lincoln to meet any women. Uh, he would be friendly with them. He would travel even further sometimes, about 60 miles from his cabin from Lincoln to Helena, and he would go to a bookstore there. And I actually interviewed the uh, woman who owned the bookstore, and she remembered Ted Kaczynski very well. And uh, she was older and not, whether she had childbearing hips or not, I don't recall. But I don't think, uh, <laughs> I don't think uh, she was his type anyway, whatever his type may have been. But, um, but you know, she said he was always friendly. 
She noticed he always had an odor about him. And when he would sit in this chair for hours and hours on end and read her books and eventually get up and buy one used paperback for five cents. Um, but she'd have to then kind of wash down the uh, the upholstered old chair where he was sitting. So wow. disinfect the area. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, um, but anyway, she didn't seem to be the person uh, that any sort of uh, longing for or desirous uh, attitude towards. So, uh, uh, but it just seemed to be a few distinct people in his life and, and women in general. And the fact that his parents created this, this creature that he, was Ted Kaczynski brilliant in the field of mathematics, but just never be able to crack the code of human interaction. And that's what his failings were. Right. And that's where they lied. And that's why in his case, not everybody, a lot of people can be in that same category, but not everybody chooses to become a serial killer of some sort. And, uh, but the seeds were planted, nature, nurture, in my mind, they're always combined somehow. And that's what led to this aberrant behavior, uh, this long-distance bombing on his part to kill people. And uh, it lasted until, fortunately, uh, we put handcuffs on him in April of 1996. So one last question about a woman in Ted's life. Um, Did you ever get to speak with or read any of the writings between him and this woman named Joy Richards, who is from Southern California, who became a pen pal of his, and whom reportedly through his letters to other people said that he wanted to marry one day. I am familiar with her and at least some of the writings they shared. Um, A true tragic end to this sort of uh, (laughs) Greek tragedy, if you will. The one woman he finally meets and who allegedly falls in love with him and he falls in love with her is met to be uh, unrequited as she develops cancer and dies. I know that was devastating for him. I actually felt bad for him and certainly her. Uh, but I, I was aware now this guy's in that captivity. He's in a space no bigger than his cabin, but doesn't have the freedom to leave whenever he wants. And now when he could never touch anyone ever again, because in, in the Supermax in Colorado, I think he could have gotten married, but it would have been by the telephone looking through the glass, the thick glass, uh, uh, you know, shield between them and they can put their hands up, but they would never actually touch. There'd be no conjugal element to it. So I am familiar with that story and I know it greatly saddened him when she died. Um, uh, but I know there's no loss of women uh, who are still writing to him and suggesting all kinds of uh, things to him, including of, of the graphic sexual nature to the point that he actually had to report some of them. I, I, I read he chose to report some of them to the prison authorities. Like, yeah. hey, can you can you block her somehow? <laughs> wow. on, on Twitter. Well, or, that's or a whole Facebook. episode we could do is just the women that sure. write serial killers in prison. <laughs> but I, you and know, they fall I, in love and marry them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. absolutely. Mendez brothers follow through with it. Um, so uh, I guess as as we sort of wrap up here, is there anything else? In his writings that you would say are sort of incel specific, as we know the term today, and do you think he fits that label? I think he, I, I honestly think he does. Um, and of course, everything in life is on a scale, uh, you know, on a continuum of some sort. Is he at zero? Is he at 10? Arguably somewhere in the middle. The, the three people we talked about in uh, Southern California 
in uh, in, uh, in Toronto and, of course, in Tallahassee earlier this year, uh, earlier just a month ago, I think, quite frankly. Uh, you know, these people would be close to the 10 scale, at least when they finally carried out their actions. Ted had so many conflictions in his life. He was so brilliant. And he, and he knew so much about himself, yet so little about himself in many ways. But he knew he was sexually frustrated. He knew he was romantically frustrated. And these issues just just festered at him. And, and they eventually fomented to this this violent persona that developed, not close up in personal violence. He would he's the type that would probably never be involved in domestic violence. He would never punch somebody out or stab somebody his violence was long uh, was long distance. He could remove himself physically, if not mentally and psychologically, from the actual event itself by hundreds, if not thousands, of miles sometimes. But there's no doubt that his his lack of uh, I won't even say sexual success, but intimacy success led him to some degree, in his own words, of craziness. And he would write in these journals, these notes, these, this autobiography that I'm going crazy here. Why can't I meet a woman? Why did my parents raise such a, a beast or a monster that I am? He would write these fictional stories very much, uh, you know, um, euphemistically about his own life, creating creatures that really mirrored his own life, that couldn't find happiness with uh, with other women uh, or with, with other, you know, female creatures. He was always the male creature or the protagonist of his story, if you will. Remember, there was an, an octopus that he wrote about that had, looking back, some of the same sort of social issues as, as Kaczynski suffered through his life, many of them brought about, of course, by himself. Um, and, and, and he certainly could have changed things if he wanted, to some degree, to at least attempt to blend in better with the society in which he was born and raised. But he, he, he just turned himself off away from that. So um, to answer your question, Shiloh, uh, again, I didn't know the word incel before maybe a year, year and a half ago when I first heard it. Uh, none of us used that term 20 years ago when studying the Unabomber. But the early profiles of John Douglas, and as well as when I got involved and helped uh, tighten them up a little bit as the manifesto came in and some other uh, uh, you know, behavioral activities that we were picking up from the Unabomber, uh, certainly from his writings and from his bomb placings and his, his, uh, his, his interaction with the New York Times, we knew this guy had some level of frustration in relationships. If he had a relationship, it was very much he's the alpha male, uh, you know, uh, his wife or his, you know, whoever he's living with can't come down into the basement or the garage. No, nobody put him in a cabin. Anybody out there says he lived in a cabin by himself. They're lying. But we certainly thought this guy led an isolated life. He may or may not have had a job. Uh, if it was, he wasn't dealing with the public. And if he was married, his wife was in a very secondary, if not tertiary position or lower in his life. And she had very little to do with his everyday interaction. She was, uh, cut apart and uh, and blocked off from any bomb-making activities, manifesto activities. And quite frankly, we said he's likely not involved with any woman, comma. Right. <laughs> However, if wow. he is, it's going to be this sort of a, a distant type of relationship. They could live in the same house conceivably, but she can't come out into the woods with him when he's practicing his you know, uh, his bomb making and his bomb detonating, whatever. So, uh, so, and it really turned out, you know, we were accurate in that regard, uh, in terms of his lack of a positive, uh, you know, relationship with any kind of a female, even the last few days, uh, last few years before, uh, he was arrested, he was writing, 
to his parents. Now, we didn't know this until after the arrest, of course, but he was writing to his mother. His father actually committed suicide. Not the best role model there, of course, for and other reasons, too, mm-hmm. not just the suicide. But he, he was telling his mother and brother, I hate you so much. I want to be removed every way, shape and form from this family. You made me into this monster I am today. And uh, but, mom, send me money from the insurance policy. I need it. And she did cut him checks uh-huh. and send them to him. Little did she know she was uh, she was, uh, you know, supporting the last vestiges of his bombing campaign right, starting that. in 1993 on and, uh, and 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 allowing him to travel, you know, to the West Coast and to buy, you know, equipment and uh, and paper and, you know, bomb parts and everything else to live out the final uh, vestiges of his uh, of his bombing campaign. So uh but he even one the one woman in his life who did care about him, did pay attention to him. Of course, it wasn't in a sexual or intimate nature, but he even pushed her out of his life, or at least by writing in these very nasty letters he sent to her. And um, um, and he was dedicated then to living a life by himself uh, with no interaction at all with other human beings. Well, he kind of got that wish now in the Supermax uh, 23-7 365 lockdown by himself in his cell, you know, for the rest of his life. My goodness. Well, so many of the hallmarks are there. They're just in a completely different time than we see them now. And I I think you've provided so much information today that just really supports that and things that we didn't know and I'm sure is going to be very new to our listeners. So, um, I, I would encourage everyone, if they want more information, to go to visit your website, which is jamesrfitzgerald.com. Um, and absolutely, if, if anyone out there wants to read more about Jim's life and career, which obviously three volumes we didn't even cover here today, uh, please pick up one of his books. Again, it's called Journey to the Center of the Mind, parts one, two, and three. And I'm very excited to hear a fourth is on the way. When do we expect that? It'll be early uh, 2020. I was going to have it out next year, but I have so many speaking demands uh, around the country. I'll be in Denmark next week, New Zealand uh, in early 19, and a bunch of other speaking engagements. And yeah, folks, uh, the books are available on Amazon, some bookstores, but certainly Amazon. And uh, if you go on my website, I can even send you um, signed copies if you're interested. So uh, consider that out. You can figure out how to do that there, and we can work it out. Maybe even maybe even before Christmas. You never know. What <laughs> are you going to so be out? Keep that are, in mind. are you going to be out on the West Coast at any time? Um, I've been asked that by a few people lately, and I have no plans right now, Scott. But I will uh, definitely let you guys know, and I'd Please be glad do. to. Uh, do some talks out there, some book signings, whatever it comes to. And uh, I like meeting the people, and they ask a lot of good questions. I have a fun uh, uh, presentation I put together, serious in parts, but there's some very interesting things that happen to someone who is the protagonist in a miniseries, and A, who is still alive, and B, is not the bad guy. So uh, <laughs> uh, social media really uh, went bonkers during the eight-week run uh, when the when uh, Manhunt Unabomber was oh, first yeah. shown on uh on the discovery channel so now of course people can binge watch it sure. but back then it was very interesting watching the uh the developments of these various uh tweets and facebook messages i was getting and then i go into a little bit of the unibomb case after that and try to tie some loose ends together it's a fascinating case uh Henri de toulouse lautrec the french artist from the turn of the last century yes. he plays a role in this case uh in terms of fc i'll let people read the book 
And uh, they were going to write up or do that on the miniseries. But even even with an eight part miniseries, the writers kind of ran out of time. So they couldn't even go into some of these things. So there's so much about this case that uh, is just fascinating. And uh, he's the true uh, Professor Moriarty of our times, uh, meaning Professor Kaczynski. And of course, I'm referring to Sherlock Holmes, fictional arch enemy. Yes. So uh, a brilliant man, uh, virtually no one like him certainly in uh, in the U.S. Uh, criminal justice history. And uh, I think we'll be writing about him for uh, for decades to come. And I was glad that my book covered as much as it could about my role in the case and the interaction I did have with Kaczynski. We did go face-to-face in a courtroom in Sacramento uh, a few years after his arrest. And that was very interesting. Maybe we can save that for our next talk. Sure. Oh, if we could. Uh, yes. I would love to be able to uh, to talk to you about that. Uh, I, I, that was going to be our next question is, did you have a chance to meet with him? What, when, what year was that? That would have been at his sentencing in January of 98 in Sacramento uh, after all the victim statements were made. And, uh, again, I go into detail. And it really is only about a, about a minute long, but just um, – when he, uh, when he was getting his handcuffs put back on him by the U.S. Marshals, the judge leaves the room. Someone from across the room yells, hey, Fitz, to me. And all of a sudden, Ted's, her, Ted's head turns to where the voice came from, to the right. Then he quickly turns to the left, sees me wave to the guy. And oh, I'll tell the story now. <laughs> and uh, But even more detail in my book. But basically, he gives me a stare for a solid 35 to 40 seconds that I've never experienced before in my life by anyone. If he could somehow had constructed a little bomb right there at the defense table uh, as the the judge was uh, rendering his sentence upon him and send it off to me through his eye, his vision, uh, he would have done it and and blown me up, but good. Because he knows my name was all over the affidavit to get into his cabin. I'm the one that cracked his code using the language. You, and, you were the uh, one that took him away, took the power away from him. Of course, it was. It was, and uh, and I mean, other people were involved. I didn't do this on my own, but I'm just saying, in terms of the language, which he went from math, loving math to language, which really aren't that much unrelated um, in, in many ways. But uh, language was now his, uh, his 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 one means of communication, which means everybody's means, but anonymously to the rest of the world. And there, I looked at every word he wrote very carefully. With no fingerprints, no DNA on any of the documents. But guess what? We used forensic linguistics, which he never thought about back then. Quite frankly, I didn't use that term back then. Uh, but uh, that was the beginning of forensic linguistics being used in the courts in the U.S. And I've worked many a case since then. And I'm still getting calls and emails and uh, from the private sector people who have anonymous letters. They want, uh, you know, somehow uh, figured out who wrote them. So, but yeah, but it all came back to... Uh, his arrest, and certainly uh, uh, two years or so later, when there I am in the courtroom, and he's giving me the dirtiest look ever. And uh, and the next time I'll save it when I was supposed to interview him in 2007, and again in 2016. There's some interesting stories tied to that too. Well, we will end thinking about that glare that he's giving you in the courtroom. Yeah. Yes. But I I want to thank you. I think on behalf of just the true crime community for your contribution um, to this this true crime piece of history, really, as well as your dedication and decades-long career in both local and federal law enforcement that has just lent so much to the cutting-edge fields of investigation. Um, And, of course, for your generosity and time today. We can't thank you enough, Jim. Well, you're very welcome, and there's a lot more all of us have to learn about this 
concept of incel, and we are still learning, and I hope we can get to that and come up with some sort of an idea of maybe how to minimize the violent overreactions of, of some of these people. So let's maybe talk about that again sometime, too. Sounds that good. Great. Thank you so much, Jim. You're welcome. This is Dr. Shiloh. And Dr. Scott. And we'll see you next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye, folks. Bye, guys. See you next time. <laughs>